Welcome. This is the Seek Coach podcast, a podcast exploring the Seek principles and how to live them in the 21st century. So, welcome to the Seek Coach podcast, Haley Lewis. Hello. Thank you for Thank having you for- me. Thank you for taking time out of your no doubt busy schedule. I know you, you're involved in a lot of things. So um, it's, uh, I'm very grateful for you taking time out to be on this podcast. And I'm really excited to have you here. So um, I think to start off with, I think it'd be good to have just a brief introduction about uh, who is Haley Lewis. What do you do? Um, and yeah, all, all the different different roles you play and different things that you have um, going on at the moment just so our listeners can get to know you. No, thank you. Um, so yeah, so I, I wear lots of different hats. I like variety. Always have done. So I suppose my main my main role. I'm a I'm a chartered and registered um, occupational psychologist in the UK, um, and uh, so I run my own business called Halo Psychology, uh, and my work kind of falls into four areas. So around forty percent of my work is one to one executive coaching. I work with leaders and managers across all sectors and then around 30% of my work is uh, designing and facilitating leadership and management training and development activities and then around 20% is team building so I'm really interested in and passionate about high performing teams and what enables those Um, and then yeah around 10% of my work is doing kind of bigger system stuff so whether that's helping an organisation develop a culture change strategy and plan or for example I worked with a, an international organisation helping them to develop their assessment for selection um, strategy so they can get the best people in the fairest way possible so yeah so that's kind of that's that's the day-to-day stuff um, another hat is so I lecture at several universities in the UK on the masters in occupational uh, business psychology so um, training and developing up the next generation of occupational psychologists which I love Um, I love getting to know the students Um, I'm a trustee of a small charity in South London um, which supports young homeless people between the ages of 16 and 24 Um, and then yeah and then I like like that's not enough Um, I like to doodle sketch notes, as you know, I, I love kind of sketch noting. And then I've got all sorts of other commitments, family commitments. So, but yeah, life is busy, but I like it. Wow. I think, yeah, I was, gonna, I was just going to think you, you still managed to do that all in seven days. and Because uh, <laughs> it sounds like you're packing a lot in. So I think, It's highly organized, always have been. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm ruthless with my boundaries. I'm going to have to take some tips from you, actually, to time, <laughs> because I think I always think I can do more. Um, but now I think hearing all of the things that you're involved in gives me inspiration to say that, yeah, it's probably my time management that I need to work on. So I probably need some tips around that from you later. It's also about knowing what to say no to. So I, I was approached by um, a consortium of GPs in the north who wanted me to be part of a working group. Um, on well-being and BAME communities and mental health um, and I, I was really excited I get excited by a lot and I tend to you know I have to really manage myself and I've had to say no yeah. on this occasion because so my mum um, is terminally ill 
and um, it's progressively getting worse. And so my priority at this point in time has to be supporting her. And so um, that's why I have to be tough about with myself, actually, in terms of what I say yes to and what I say no to. So I have to say no to that. And I'm gutted, but it's also the right thing to do. Yeah, I think that's very important, actually. Because saying no, saying no is really is, is very, very, very difficult, actually. Um, because you've got to think about things fully. And I guess if you're not able to make the commitment as well, then I guess it's not fair for accepting um, that, op- that, that sort of opportunity as well. But life always has its priorities and, and you're right. You have to accommodate. That's very good. So yeah, there's, there's so much to unpack here, actually. I don't know where to start because um, there's so many different things that you do that's so interesting. But um, I thought it'd be very interesting to talk about leadership and the concept, I guess we've heard of authentic leadership, but there's um, subservient leadership, and I guess there's traditional, you know, authoritarian leadership at the moment. So, there, but there's a lot of change happening. So, I thought it'd be good to have a conversation with you to understand, with with the research that you do, to sort of enlighten us on what 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 works you know, and what used to work or what was a traditional method of leadership versus what, what actually might be more productive, actually. So those who've worked with me, so either my, any, any, I might have some students listening to this and also some clients. So um, if there are people listening who work with me, you know what I'm about to say. So context is the key word for me. Um, I start every lecture with it. I start every conversation with a client with it. I don't believe in one size fits all. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm mindful of not writing off certain leadership styles. Yeah. Um, I think it's about understanding the context within which an organisation and a team is operating under and also where they want to get to. So in some instances, authentically an authentic leadership approach might be the, the best way now the issue with authentic leadership is the research the empirical research that backs up is quite patchy um transformational leadership might be which has much more empirical research about it in terms of the impact on organizational culture um could be the way to go or transactional leadership which is much more the operational mechanistic again that could be the way to go or servant leadership so again, I think I think anybody working in this space needs to learn about and get comfortable and going deep on the range of leadership styles, and then use that in order to inform um, their thinking and their advice to the organisations that they're either working in or working with, um, in terms of what will help them get to where they want to go. Yeah. So. I can completely resonate with that because every organization will have a culture, every organization will have different purposes and themes and different structures set up. And I guess it's the combination of leadership styles that probably leaders need to be aware of and how to utilize them in those different situations. Um, and I think when I was when I was kind of early in my career, I always saw leaders as somebody, you know, very charismatic and authoritarian and you know, very direct and people would be afraid to talk to them and they would they would be the ones with the answer and stuff. But as I 
kind of progressed in my career, I realized actually the, the benefits of establishing relationships and trust and, and people seeing you as somebody who's going to take ownership of an issue and empower people to do things. But then also at the same time, you have to deliver lots of good news. Uh, but I think basing those on those sort of softer skills and having those relationships built makes that conversation that little bit more easier and understandable because it's not such a one-way top-down sort of situation so so what, what do you think the what do you think leaders can do to sort of broaden the horizon on these sort of techniques that we can use to to lead teams and, and have high performing teams like you say you work with and do your workshops so you might have seen a lot of this so there's something first of all there's a couple of things that I just want to pick up on in terms of what you just said. So I think, first of all, it's about acknowledging the impact you one has as a leader, whether you like it or not. So I work, one of the most common things that uh, the leaders I work with uh, say, I, I work a lot with public sector, so one of the most common things that senior leaders say is, I'm not hierarchical, you know, I want to hear everybody's opinion but they're not recognizing that or acknowledging that even if you genuinely feel that way there is an automatic thing that happens with your position your job title your positional power where you sit in the hierarchy that will have an implicit impact yes sure. on how people are and aren't with you yeah. and there's something about respecting that and acknowledging that um the other thing is there are other players in this thing we call leadership. So researchers, psychologists use the term followers. Now I'm not a big fan of the term followers because that feels to me like sheep or feels like quite messianic. Let's just mm. follow the Messiah across the desert. Um, but that's the term we use um, as psychological researchers. But followers play a part in this thing we call leadership and this thing we call culture. So I'll give you an example. Um, one organization I worked with, um, the leadership team were genuinely focused on, they wanted to hear employee voice, they wanted to kind of create spaces where um, people would open up. They had the ethos of, we don't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. A lot of employees, like no 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 you're paid to have the answers you earn a lot of money mr mrs ms however you kind of define yourself you you earn a lot of money no you come up with the answer and that's something we don't acknowledge that that some employees don't want to contribute their voice yes and again there's something about acknowledging that having a discussion around that and then creating frameworks that enable people to work through that. But those are the two things that kind of jumped up in my mind as you were, you were talking. We've got in a flow of having employee surveys and collecting all this data and stuff. So do you, do you find they're quite, they're still as useful as they, as they were meant to be? Do you think that they, they still allow those feedback and voices to make a change to the organization. Cause sometimes I think we've had, I've seen instances where people have been like, mm, what's the point? Nothing's going to be done with it. You know, nothing's been done with it for the last couple of years, but it's still a convenient way to 
canvas opinion yeah i, I definitely so i do think surveys play a part i think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head where i see surveys lose their impact is is where employees don't see action or they can't they can't see that new initiative that's sprung up they can't relate it back because nobody's related it back for them yes. in terms of the feedback that came up in the survey this is something that i used to see so when i was um in a in an organization or i was a head of organization development but then later on i became head of comms and so i was all about the comms cycle and yes. feeding back to the audience and then using audience data that's where i'd see things go wrong and so people become very resentful. You are taking their valuable time. Some people end up doing the survey outside of office hours because it's the only time they've got to do it. And then they can't see what's the point. So if there was one piece of advice I would give organizations, it's make sure you are communicating out what came out. More importantly, what's being done or being done and then keep repeating that message and there's also something about testing out the messaging just because you're clear in your mind as the leader well we put it in the newsletter that what we do doesn't mean that everybody's acknowledged that seen it understood it um, and so there's something about testing out the messaging that it's landing with your employees and the different groups of employees as well will see things in different ways so yeah, the feedback element is, is where I see it fall down. And that's why we see the percentage of people who participate lower, get, get lower and lower each cycle in certain organisations. I guess the, the, the next point, you, you probably resonate with this as, a, as, as somebody who does research and in the academic field, when you get numbers and you put them into trends and KPIs, it kind of sometimes loses the message. And I remember once, I, I remember an example where an employee survey had gone out and et cetera, and they asked, asked very good questions around, do you have confidence in the senior leadership team and et cetera, et cetera. And the, and the majority of the response was, no, we're quite disconnected. We don't know what they're doing and we don't really have that confidence, et cetera. But you know, the result, result of that was like, it was, on, it was the least on the pecking order because they almost, they didn't want to acknowledge it. And what they did was they delegated out the, the response to the actual team that the, the, the employee said they weren't confident with to actually deal with the issue. So, you know, I, I see, I see the, the issue is if you're going to do a survey, do something about it. I think the authenticity has to be there. Uh, it's going to make a difference. And I think whether you're, so this is something that comes up. Um, so I, I run, um, development sessions for in-house consultants so in-house organizational development consultants um but i also do the same with my students my postgraduate students and one of the most important things whether you're an internal consultant working inside the system or you're an external consultant bought in one of the most important skills to have and certainly it's one that's served me well you've got to be able to speak truth to power so we have ethics that we need to abide by you know we can't collude with leadership so i know because it's happened to me when there's been bad news for example in an employee survey i've been asked to play it down or we'll just leave that bit out 
uh, when we feed it back. Um, and our job as, as kind of consultants, as experts, whether we're internal or external, is to push back against that and not collude with it. Um, because if, if, if a leadership team genuinely wants to change, that's not the way to go about it, by hiding data or, or manipulating the data. Um, but yeah, speaking truth to power is vital. So do you have any advice for any leaders on how they can start to sort of reflect on their leadership style and sort of understand what other areas they may need to sort of in tune their sort of leadership to to get the, the most out of their teams really? Yeah. So there's a, there's a couple of things. Well, there's, there's, a, there's three things I suggest. Um, so I know that money is limited in some organisations. So take a small charity, for example. So if you can't afford to work with a coach, for example, you can just do it yourself. So um, we know from anecdotal case studies, for example, that doing a self-reflection journal at least once a week where you ask yourself certain questions, you know, have I been my best self as a leader? You know, what's been my proudest moment? Maybe what am I ashamed of in terms of how I behave? Um, but journaling, we know, can, can help us make sense of who we are and the impact we have. Um, so that's something fairly straightforward and cheap or well, free that you can do. Yeah. Um, the, the second suggestion is if you um, are minded to and if you can afford it to work with a coach. Um, and I always, so it's always really interesting to me. Uh, I don't, this isn't an issue for senior leaders. A lot of senior leaders get that. They've, they've either had a coach in the past or they're open to it. The issue is more middle managers. They see it as a punishment and I'm fascinated by that. Um, because I always use the analogy of the Olympics. So if you're in if you're in Team GB, for example, you can't do that on your own. You know you can't be you can't be an athlete, a, a world class athlete, and just do it on your own. You need, you have a nutritionist, you have a coach, you have um, you have a chiropractor, you you have all sorts of experts surrounding you to be the best you can be. No different as leaders and managers. You need that support team yes. to be an Olympian. Um, so that's the second thing I suggest is, is work with a coach. Um, and the third thing, again, you can do this yourself. So you can do this yourself for free, or you can do it in conjunction with a coach to ask for feedback. Um, so so um, Bob Sutton, in his excellent book, Good Boss, Bad Boss, he has some prompts of questions that good leaders should ask their teams and the people they work with on a regular basis um, and they're questions like you know um, what are my strengths how am I helping you uh, in a good way uh, what are my weaknesses um, how am I get am I when am I getting in your way um, and is there anything I need to start doing that I'm not doing at all um, and just getting into the, the practice of maybe asking those questions every few months um, can be helpful. That's, that's something I do with a lot of my coaching clients is we do a form of 360. Yes. But we know that 
so there was research by Susan Ross at the University of Michigan. She, her and her team uh, looked at chief executives of organisations uh, in both America and Belgium. Bit of a weird combination, but yeah, America and Belgium. Um, and what they consistently found is those chief executives who proactively asked for feedback had much better productivity and bottom line figures. So if you're not convinced about asking for feedback or you're a little bit scared of asking for feedback, yeah. it could impact how your business does uh, financially, employee morale wise, uh, productivity level wise. So it could make a big difference. Yeah, that's the, I think those there's, three there's tips are really, really good actually because I mean, two of them are free, so you don't need anything to do them. You just need to ask the questions of yourself or to your teams. And I think the third one's really good because actually it's, um, it's not just waiting for a yearly appraisal or a six-month review to do these 360s or ask for feedback. It's actually proactively engaging consist consistently to... And you're probably, you're probably, you're probably uh, weeding out a lot of problems that are going to come up if you mm -hmm. leave it for a longer period. Um, so I think that's very important. I think on the coaching thing, so I'm, I'm at that middle level of management and I, I proact, I was, a bit, I was, I was a bit different. So I proactively looked for a mentor within the organization because it was my first step up into the middle management role. So I was very conscious that I wanted to have somebody senior who's been through the ranks and has dealt with all these things to then learn from, but also because I'm doing the MBA, they've actually given us, they've given us six sessions with a coach through the collaboration with the audit firm that they're doing and it was the first time i've ever had an independent coach and i was like wow this is amazing you know it was like i don't know it was like therapy for me because i was like you know i can just speak my mind they're not going to judge me they're just going to ask me questions and they're going to prompt and prod me to, to to think about things and to commit myself to my own objectives effectively so i found it so rewarding like literally it was an eye-opener for me it just yeah, you know, it's a no-brainer. And I think, like you say, beyond that, beyond that, beyond the middle level management, it's a, it's a normal thing. They do reciprocal mentoring. They have coaches, and it's all funded. It's all part of the program because almost, I feel what we're we're missing out because actually the middle level is the one that has to do a lot of the operational management and the strategic bit and making it happen. So it's actually probably the more critical layer that needs this. So have you found? So I guess. People have been reaching out to you, and that independently or organisation-wide? But you can definitely see there's a big gap there. Uh, both. So it's been really interesting uh, to see an increase in the number of private clients. So people who are pay, don't want their organisation to pay for the coaching; they're paying yes. for it themselves. And okay. there's a number of reasons for that. I uh, one because they want to invest in themselves and I always think that's a mark of a good leader when you're prepared to come put your own hand in your pocket if you're privileged enough to be able to yes. invest in yourself um, a more insidious negative reason is because they don't trust their organization and, and they don't want them to have anything to do with it um, but I have seen an increase all women okay wow all women which is one of the things that has fueled my thinking around my, my research, my doctorate research, which we'll come to later, because um, there's been some interesting things. But I would say about 80% of my coaching work is through organisations. 
Um, so I, yeah, I and it and it's a real breadth. So I work with everybody from chief executives or managing directors, whatever the equivalent is, all the way through to kind of middle uh, mm. operational managers. Uh, so either heads of service yes. or operational frontline managers. Um, and as you say, I love it when I see uh, the more distrusting middle managers who initially are like, this is a punishment. And then they become the biggest fans. Then they're like, I'm never looking back. Um, so quite a few of my clients are repeat business. Okay. Um, I'm not a fan. I know this is going to sound really judgmental. I'm not a fan of coaches who end up coaching people forever. Yes. Non-stop. So I always advise my clients let's take a break so we'll do six to nine months yes um and then i want them to go away for a bit and have a bit of cold light of day reflection and um, if they choose to come back maybe a year later that's that's i see that as okay but yeah this whole non-stop i hear some coaches proudly talk about oh i've been working with the same client for 10 years i don't see that as a good thing because they're only getting your perspective. Yeah. So I'm always encouraging some of my clients to try out other coaches as well. And there's a, there's a big difference between mentoring and coaching. And I think people sometimes get confused between that. And that's why it sounds a bit surprising that someone would want a coach for a number of years because, yeah, so I guess it would probably better for you to define actually what the difference is so the listeners know the difference yeah. between mentoring and coaching. So in a, in a really it's a basic different and there may be some listeners who who, who kind of are listening and going oh that's rubbish Hayley. but this is my take on it um so uh, a mentor as you've given through your own example um typically is somebody more senior than you in the kind of career that you want and they have a kind of advisory role so it's okay for them to kind of um, give advice so so you become more of a questioner and they have the answers. Yes. A coach, it's the other way around. So they'll ask more of the questions. They're like that, they're like that little kid who's like, why, why? Um, My four-year-old at the moment. Yep. <laughs> um, tugging at your sleeve. Um, because it, it, it stems from the belief that even if you don't realise it, you have the answer inside you. Um, so that's the, that's the kind of slight difference. There's a couple of things I just want to throw into the mix, though. Um, so with the mentoring, we, we've seen an increase in things like reverse mentoring, yes. for example. So I know uh, the British Army um, has been trying reverse mentoring um, and some other sectors have been trying that out. And there's a growing body of research in the UK from some of the universities about the power of research, uh, reverse mentoring. So that's where somebody maybe more junior starting out in their career is mentoring somebody more senior. Maybe I'm going to make this is going to sound awful now, but maybe about using digital. So you might have a chief executive who's in their 50s or 60s, who's okay with technology, but doesn't use social media, but wants to. And so they get some reverse mentoring, maybe from somebody new in the communications team. I don't know. Um, I think you should have more than one mentor. So I've always had more than one at any one time who give me different things. Yes. So whether it's a career path, whether it's surviving as a female in leadership but you know so i've always had like three or four on go 
um, sounds awful, doesn't it? Our collector, <laughs> mentor collector. Um, and then the coaching thing. So I always say to my clients, again, I think as I said to you before the recording started, I don't believe in one size fits all. Yes. And as a coach, I pride myself on being able to adapt myself in the moment to what the client needs. I don't conform to the, this is the coaching framework you must use and you must only ever ask questions because sometimes, just sometimes, the client, no matter how hard you're trying to ask questions, are just not in the space or yeah. they don't have the answer. Yes. And so that's when I think you can flick to the mentor role. But I will always ask permission. I'll say, I might have an idea for you based on my yeah. experience. Do you want me to share it? Yeah. So I think you can have an overlap in roles. I think that's important because and we're probably going to touch on this topic next is around understanding the gaps or not the gaps or the journeys that certain people have been on. You know, they may not be aware of certain things or have the privilege to be in those experiences. So then you may need to then give the option that, yeah, what about this? Or actually you may learn something from them, from them speaking to say, actually, maybe what you thought would should be a bit different of an advice for them so i get i get we'll go, we'll go into the next topic so i think these three points are really key i think so you know it was a self-reflection journal which people can do and uh, getting a coach and is there any advice on how to find a mentor because almost like coach mentoring is almost like you ask somebody and it's kind of seeing if they've got time so it's a bit of a different ask whereas if you get a coach you can find a coach and you can pay for a coach or get your organization to pay for it but how would you approach a mentor that would probably help the listeners? so there's so there's two types of mentoring typically so you've got the formal mentoring so um some organizations particularly big organizations will have formal mentoring schemes so they'll match you with somebody inside the organization yes. um or even inside the sector so for example if you work in the local government sector you might be matched with a more senior person in another local authority but that there's like a formal scheme you put what it is you're looking for and you're matched so it's a bit like a matchmaking service yes and then you have informal mentoring and that's where as you say you're finding the mentor or mentors yourself the thing that i said so i get asked about this a lot from my postgrad students in particular yes um there's something about Again, it requires, I think the watchword for today's podcast is bravery and courage. So it requires you to be brave and send a message, such as through LinkedIn, so a personalised message to somebody that you would like to mentor you. So if there's somebody in your network or there's somebody in your network who knows someone, yes, you should send them a personalised message. The things to be careful of when doing that. Be respectful of the other person's time. So you might be asking someone who gets asked a lot. Yeah. Um, so don't take it personally if they don't come back straight away, or if they come back and say, "I can't, I can't mentor you at the moment." Okay. But at least you've opened up the communication. The other thing, and I get this myself when I'm asked to mentor a new psychologists, so I get lots of messages um, each week. And I'll tell you the ones that I'm always impressed by. 
they're really clear about their ask. They've, they've done their research on me and they are very clear about the two or three things they think I could help them with. And then here's the clincher. They always ask how, I, how they might be able to help me. Because when you come across as take, 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 that's only going to irritate people and get their backs up and make them less inclined to help you. Yes. So I think when you're looking for a mentor, remember it should be a reciprocal thing. Yeah. Clear about your ask, but ask them how you might be able to help them or that you're looking forward to also helping them. Yeah, that's really good. Because it is, it is almost, yeah, as you say, these people probably busy and then obviously um, responsible roles, which are demanding as it is. But I think it's the same thing around you know applying for jobs and creating those opportunities it's really really having a well thought out response or you know, initial message that succinctly puts it so clear that you know what you want to achieve out of it and also the commitment that you're expecting and also what you can actually offer and i think that's the bit i think a lot of people miss out on everybody has something to offer and um, even if you just touch on the earlier example, say somebody wants to learn about digital tools and stuff, and that is something you know about, that could be something something as simple as that, really. Exactly. That's exactly it. And I'd say the, the function I don't see used enough on LinkedIn, for example. So I do a, I do a couple of careers talks for um, those training to be occupational psychologists. And I... I have to say, I, I mean, I, I tend to be an upbeat, positive person, but it's the one time I feel disappointed because every year I say to people, my network is your network. It requires you to do a bit of work, but if you go into my network and you see somebody in my network, and yes, there's, there's thousands of people there, if you really want to progress, you'll put the work in. If you see maybe two or three people in that list, you would like me to introduce you to so yes. they become part of your network go ahead and do that yeah. in 10 years i've had three people do that wow. yeah it's the right? proactive you know that proactive nature yes. right? some people have that naturally where they're like right i want to leverage this position and especially with digital tools nowadays like we when I was growing you would have to physically find somebody or call somebody you know it was very very restrictive but now it's literally just you could be sitting on your phone anywhere in the world and just ping a message exactly but I think that's really interesting what you just touched on now Carl because I think we would have learned to put the work in yeah go to the Encyclopedia Britannica or go to the yellow pages and you know uh, when I talk to my so my eldest niece is about to go to university she she doesn't get any of that she's like what you you had to look through a phone book. Yeah, yeah I had to look through a phone book. Um, but, but we learned to put the work in. And I think just as I'm a massive fan of, of digital technology, and I think it's opened up so many worlds and spaces, there's a downside in it. It can make us lazy. And, yeah. and um, we just expect instant gratification. Yeah. And this is the, as, as, as I say, this is the point that I particularly make to postgraduate students. Uh, you've, got to put the, you've got to put the work in. Mm -hmm. And the program directors I work with on the masters are always horrified. They're like, 
why are they not getting it? You've got a really rich network of psychologists who run their own businesses. If it were me, I'd be going in and pillaging that and asking you to introduce me to all sorts. And the fact that only three people in 10 years have done that um, says a lot um, about not being prepared to put the work in. Yeah. So there's proactivity and then there's permission. But I've given permission. Yes. Yeah. So that tells me there's something else going on. And it just, I think for some people, it just feels like too much effort. Yeah. I guess that in some cases it might just be a fear factor of going into the unknown and and then not knowing what to do or say and stuff. But yeah, I guess if you're given permission in the first place, that's an open invitation really to say, right, here's the pie available, but you've got to go to the pie. It's not going to come to you. And I will, I will hold your hand because I will introduce you to the person. You're not having to do it. Yes. Um, I had, yeah, it's fascinating somebody, me. I had somebody recently reach out for a friend who just graduated who wanted to get into the accountancy and finance field. And I, was, and I had a, a meeting with him yesterday just to talk about CV and job finding and all that sort of stuff and my experiences and my career. And I was like, look, you should be proud of what you've done. You've reached out to your network and you've, you know, within a couple of days reached out to me who now I've progressed in my career, but I can give you advice to progress your mm-hmm. career earlier. And probably, you know, you've got, you got more potential because of that now. But and I said, look, you know, kudos to you because a lot of people just wouldn't do that at all. And that's what you need. That's what's missing to create the opportunities. You've got to put in the work. So yeah, definitely. And I think that just to finish off that last point was that book, Good Boss, Bad Boss. Who yeah, is it by, by? Bob, by Bob Sutton. Bob Sutton. So Robert, yeah. Robert Sutton. He's a Robert professor Sutton. in the United States. He's uh, he's my kind of author. So um, hopefully I won't offend your listeners. You can edit this out. But his first book. Yes. is called the no asshole rule yeah that's his that's the name of the book yeah, yeah. um right. so he's he's and it's it's predicated on the on the notion of leaders not being that um yeah. and he backs up the research and so good boss bad boss is the follow-up to that okay um, and it's just filled with case studies and research but more importantly tools and tips yes yeah and, and that's I think that's a really, really good, good free tips to help people sort of learn more about themselves really and become better leaders. And, and it's actually not just, I guess there's a combination of self-reflection, but then there's also a combination of feedback, which is, you know, a 360 effectively happening consistently within. Brilliant. So I think the next topic I wanted to dive into is kind of related to leadership, but understanding the whole movement of Black Lives Matter, organizations trying to become anti-racist, but actually a lot of this work has got to be done by the leaders themselves or at least an attempt to try to bring some of this change, start the journey, have these, have these conversations which haven't happened in the past. And I think it seems to be from experience so far, a struggle. And I think it will be a struggle. So that's, that's something we've got to accept and accepting the vulnerability, but both from senior leaders and, you know, that middle, middle range of leaders that are probably going to have to have those more deeper dive conversations and understand what's been going on on the ground. So how would you think, what, what have you, what have you experienced so far from your, your own work and what are the themes that are resonating that you think are really important for organizations and leaders to understand? 
So I think the first thing to say is I am definitely not an expert in this place, in this space. Um, but I have some great people who want to interview them. Okay. Um, so we can have a little chat after. Um, there's some amazing people working in this space who are psychologists aren't well. Um, however, so from so with that caveat that I am not an expert and I'm learning myself about stuff. Um, the, the things that I'm seeing, I, I think we were talking about this before the recording started. I'm seeing too, many, too much uh, diversity and inclusion programs be treated as checklists and KPIs. Well, we want to, you know, if we increase by 33.3%, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's a space for plans and KPIs, but that shouldn't be the be all, and that doesn't let you off doing the work, and it doesn't also mean that you get to a nice, neat endpoint. I see this as a journey for life. Yeah. Um, I hate the word journey in this context, but I can't think of a better one. It's Saturday morning, I've only had two coffees. Um, but yeah, I, I see this as a thing for life. You've got to go all in, and, and that this is it now. You are constantly learning and challenging yourself and asking yourself questions and asking others questions forever. Yes. Um, and you'll get, and I think, so that's the first thing. I think the second thing is accepting that you will get as much wrong as you will get right. Again, this is not a nice, neat little plan where everything must go perfectly because we're talking about humans and the complexity that, that comes with being human and our lived experience and the messy emotions we all feel. Um, and the messy emotions include fear and shame and vulnerability and how that plays out. So there's something about acknowledge that. Because until you acknowledge that, yeah. or keep doing point number one, which is a plan and KPIs. Yeah. And I think the third thing that I've seen is, and I think it, I like to think it's coming from a good place, but organisations try and sort this stuff out themselves. Bring in people who've got the right expertise to help you with what can feel like a messy, um, sometimes explosive um, situation. Yeah. And from my own perspective, the thing that I see, so even before Black Lives Matters really took hold as a moment or a movement, I keep hearing people talk about, is it a moment or a movement? Um, wh whichever kind of perspective you're coming from, I saw it really took hold this summer. Even before that, when I'm pulled into conflict situations, so I do, as part of team building, I do quite a bit of conflict resolution between team members, between team members of the bot. Yes. And consistently, when I do my root calls, when I'm doing interviews and getting to the root cause of what's going on, it's because nine times out of ten, the manager has avoided a conversation because they've lacked the confidence. They've been frightened of upsetting the other person. And so it goes unsaid. But because we're all quite instinctive individuals, just because something's not said, you get a feeling that something's wrong. Yeah. 
And I think, as I said to you before the recording, it becomes a bit of a poison that takes root. And so if we link that to Black Lives Matters, I see managers get really scared. You know, most of them are good people, but they're just frightened of saying the wrong thing in the wrong way. And, and I think we have to create spaces where we, where we acknowledge, do you know what, you might say it wrong, but the fact that you've said something is a good thing and let's help you develop your confidence and language and the, and the conversations that you need to be having. So yeah, those are the main things that have been going through my mind over the past few months. Yes. Yeah, I think it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely challenging from what, what I've seen so far. And I think like you, like, you, like you touched on earlier, it's the context of each organization as well, because the mechanics is different. Because you may have the organization within the organization, a lot of this knowledge and awareness already, um, and trauma sitting there. And it, it, they, that, you know, community is ready to talk about it because they they want to take sort of that um, charge of it. Whereas other organizations may not have that same level of sort of um, knowledge and awareness. So it really depends. And I think the, the, the one part that I've recently realized as well is it was somebody posted it on LinkedIn, is that EDI was always um, it was always an optional activity is always expected to be a voluntary activity you do on top of your day job so it didn't really have the prominence apart from the sum of the resource internally to administer policies and deal with discrepancies and all that sort of stuff anything in addition was a voluntary exercise so people couldn't be involved because of demanding work or, or requirements or family commitments or etc so in so one of the things was the people asking now that organizations need to put some money behind some resource behind it to actually create um, the capacity to, to start the conversation because for so long it's just been a voluntary thing as you as you were talking i think i think that's such a good point about edi the quality diversity and inclusion being seen as an add-on and actually got to the end of the, the performance year uh, for the organisation and then for teams and, and managers. And if somebody hasn't quite met their commitment, you can't, oh, okay, we'll just roll it over. Um, and I, I like to think that's not acceptable anymore. It has to become the centre of everything because how we think about and work with and approach EDI impacts the work we do the yes. services we deliver so actually it's deep rooted in all our performance objectives surely but as you were talking there, there was a so there's a framework that i teach lots of managers about trust about building trust um it's called the trust triangle and it's by a, a guy called john carter in the united states and i've written about it on my website on my blog but the trust triangle, the three foundation stones are number one, straight talk. So just having a frank, honest conversation. That doesn't mean it's not respectful, but you're not beating around the bush. It's just about having that straight conversation. The second uh, foundation stone is listen to understand. Now, the trap that many of us as humans fall into 
particularly when we're feeling under threat, when we're feeling vulnerable, is we're kind of half listening because we're focusing on the really smart response we want to give to the other person. That doesn't mean you're listening, you're immersing yourself in what the other person is talking about. Particularly, you know, and that's important. You use the brilliant word. Particularly if they're talking about trauma. And the third uh, foundation stone is make commitments to each other. This is what I will do. This is what you will do. And this is how we will help each other. Without those three things, John Carter says, you can't build up to the top of the triangle, which is trust. Mm. You won't see each other as reliable, um, and you definitely therefore won't trust each other. And I think thinking about it now, that's a really helpful framework for what we're talking about in terms of the conversations and the action that needs to happen um, as a result of recent events. Yeah, I think that that model sounds, I'll look at that. After. I'll send you the link. And I'll probably share it on the episode details as well so everybody can. But it sounds like it's a good place to start because we, we had this conversation before the, the recording around, you know, I, I particularly work in the not-for-profit sector, but Akiva have put out eight principles for CEOs of charities to sign up to. And it kind of relates to the KPI bit. Now we're in a rush to all sign up and put these on our websites and stuff. But even if you just go into one of the aspects you know it's this huge amount of work and we talked about we talked about the one minor i talked about one minor point around you know the, the, how to make recruitment fairer and it was like a sub point around taking into account lived experience and i said well that's a challenge because of the trauma you know some people may not want to talk about it they may feel there's tokenism how do you draw it out how do you you know how do you even look to administer that but it almost feels like they're great things to work towards which actually we don't know how long it's going to take for us to even get there. But it almost does advocate a bit of a tick thing saying, actually, we have good EDI policies, which now align to that. We do blind name recruitment, which means we are fairer with our recruitment. But actually, that's just a system thing. How can we prove that actually I've not been biased because I can still read the CV and see things like age and ethnicity through different language that's used? You know, it's quite... There's more to just taking out a name from the process, you know, and so it's almost like we're, we're again trying to tick boxes, but we've got to go one step back to basics and like this trust model, that means you're having, you know, true conversations or safe spaces and and listening, I think, is a key one, because we all we all do that, you know, we resonate with the things that we like, and then as soon as something said that doesn't resonate with us, we're like, oh, how are we gonna? parry this off or how are we going to contra this without actually being vulnerable so it was so it was really interesting um, so, so before our recording started we talked about the, the uh, principles and so for example the one about lived experience and the thing that jumped into my mind is what of interviewers rating lived experience and who would they to determine whether your lived experience passes or fails um you know and uh, so i found that really interesting i think again i like i like to start from basis people are coming from a good intent you know the intent is so good but often i see the execution just falls a bit short 
so one of the things that popped into my head as you were you were talking is well again i am not an expert in this space you'll probably talk to other people who come up with brilliant stuff around ebi one thing i was thinking is a good maybe a, a, at the end of each interview so say you're interviewing six people in a day as a panel of interviewers who've got three interviewers at the end of each interview so if you're if you're kind of writing up at the end of each interview um actually asking each other okay let's have an honest conversation are we being biased is, are any of our biases playing through in how we're writing up and how we're rating what biases are coming to the fore what were the things that the person said that were uncomfortable for me personally and i think actually then putting it out there almost takes the power out of it does, does that make sense I, I just think talking that stuff through yes yeah i think the like i've been been on many interviews and conducted many interviews and I think that's why it's very important to have a right panel who are gonna who are not afraid to talk about these biases. And I think, I mean, we, we've been in interviews where the last question on the page has to be an EDI question. And actually, you talking about it now is just sort of brought this back from memory. We were <laughs> we're, we're mandated to ask this question because it's. We, we are an EDI organization and you're saying how have you what do you think of EDI and how how do you practice it and actually now looking back you know after all this movement and awareness and things sometimes that's quite condescending because we are asking that question to those individuals who have been impacted by you know being underprivileged so it's almost like a double whammy that we're telling them to justify that they are practicing this in an unjust system. So, so yeah. But also, who's and and I, you know, I think I think a lot of interview questions fall short because um, most people are cute around interviews. Who's going to turn around and go, well, actually, I don't practice EDI. You know, they're going to tell you what they think you want to hear. Yeah. Um, so there's something about how you carefully craft the question. I've always been a fan of reverse like negative questions. Yes. So for example, rather than how do you practice BBI, I would say, tell us about a time when you've been biased against someone. Yeah. How did that play out? Why were you biased? And what did you learn about yourself? Yes. And I think when you phrase questions like that, whenever I've kind of asked because everybody expects the positive pressure to tell me about a time when you were, you know, you delivered your most successful project. Uh, I think people have got used to those kinds of competency-based questions. It, I've seen it happen so many times. I've been interviewing for more than 20 years and I see so many people get thrown when you say, tell me about a time when you failed a project or tell me about a time when you lacked creativity. Yeah. They kind of look at you and go, so actually asking a question around, tell me about a time when you were really biased against a colleague. Yeah. And you can have, and, and then they can't really say, yeah, I've never been biased because <laughs> that's, not impossible, that's impossible, isn't well, it? They could, but as an interview panel, you could go, well, this is really interesting. And maybe one of the interview panels could then say, well, I've been biased. Yeah, be open to it, yeah. Absolutely. And then you have yeah. a very different dialogue that takes place. It's almost um, like, it needs to be a conversation rather than a series of questions. 
because the conversation is more in depth and it's a bit more free flow and i think we've got through that thing where we think we're being fair by asking the same question to every single person but actually that's the vanilla approach isn't it it's like it's like the exam system isn't fair because some people are just not good at exams they learn practical and can do it in an assignment or you know versus an exam pressure so the interviews almost kind of become that to be fair well but we do know from again from research over the last 50 plus years that structured interviews where it is the same questions have higher reliability uh, and validity so we do know they work, but I think you make a really good point. So you could have, so yes, yeah, so you can have your consistent bank of questions that you ask each candidate for consistency, reliability, validity, but then you could have one or two questions for each of them that, that are more adaptive to each individual. Things that you want to explore a little bit more in depth. Yeah, we kind of focus on a different part of the, the EDI problem, I guess, around recruitment. But yeah, I guess it shows the challenge that organizations have even trying to address one of the sub points and one of their you know, commitments that they're making. And I think, yeah, it's definitely positive everybody signing up to this. And I think there's probably a bit of learning, a cross-sectional learning that maybe organizations need to do. How are other organizations doing it? Get the experts in, you know, rather than depending on that community to come up with the answers i think that's another challenge actually is 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 don't expect people who have felt the you know the the brunt of the systematic systematic problem to give the answers and give them that freedom to have a network so where we are at the moment we do have a racial equality network which has become very active and they're taking ownership on certain things Uh, for example they're taking ownership on what should Bain be called going forward? Because that's not a name that we've chosen to have. And it doesn't represent equality even within that community because some are you know, underprivileged more than others. And there's other dynamics to it. But I think there was a couple of sort of parts where some of the actions from the senior leadership team may seem aggressive because they're taking ownership or trying to do something from an authentic place. But it can be, it can be it's definitely going to be a challenging process i know for sure because there's just so much involved the dynamics within that so have you have you have you been engaged in any organizations to sort of help them with this piece of work at the moment or so i've been asked quite a few times in the past month um, and i passed them to other people so i'm very very open but i am not an expert in this, in this space i am a supportive ally yes but if, if you're going to spend hard-earned money as an organisation and your valuable time, you need to work with people who know much more than I do. So, um, so yeah, so I've been, I've been forwarding to, um, I've, got three, uh, I've got three women in my network, each who run their own business, yes. who are experts in this space. Um, so I'm really clear about just also owning our own shortcomings. Um, so I'm not just going to take work for the sake of it. Yeah. Um, I think that, I just want to pick up on, on something you said about the, 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 the BAME and the terminology. Which is, there's also something about we're more than just our ethnicity. Yeah. So we were talking before the recording about intersections. So for example, um, uh, a young black 
woman's experience, maybe a young black woman who grew up on a council estate in South London will be very different, maybe from uh, an older black man, hmm. will be very different from um, uh, a Sikh man yeah. born in the UK. And I think we need to be looking through multiple lenses or we're in danger of we're in danger of falling into the same traps about how we solve some of these issues because the interventions that would support that young black woman from uh, a deprived background will be different will need to be different yes. from that young or that older black man who went to university in the 80s yeah. and who's now chief executive you know yeah. one size doesn't fit all that's my yeah. mantra if there's one thing you take away, one size doesn't fit all. Is my we we can't keep doing that. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Is the if we're here now, it's almost like why not do it right and take your time and do it right? Because like like we we discussed, there's so much multi layers to everybody. You know, somebody could be a, a, a second generation immigration. You know, their parents could have been immigrants, but they weren't first generation immigrants. And you know where you brought you were brought up, but also what you've what you've numbed down from your roots or your cultures because you felt that wasn't you weren't allowed to you know they're just the dynamics are so wide, and even then we said you know it's not just the blanket thing white versus black because you know there's multitudes within each community and even within the South Asian community there's racism that exists in the black community racism or you know divisions between how people subsect all of those communities as well so there's a lot of reflection a lot of reflection and, com and honest conversations i think we need to have to start progressing this but i think a lot of organizations start to have safe safe spaces so i think that's a good thing to sort of enable those conversations to be heard and i think actually allowing employees to take time out to do this as part of their job is a very key enabler as well rather than it being just an add-on but um yeah and i think it's it's interesting you know we get now is the time to really do this right and get this right i think as part of that recognizing part of getting something right is recognizing things are going to go wrong yes but not covering them up not being defensive about that just owning that yeah and going we tried this it it actually didn't work um let's explore why and then and then what we can learn moving forward yeah that's it. It's a constant learning journey, but being vulnerable and humble enough to understand the lessons within the failures, because that's I mean, we all fail. That's just part of life. But it's right. whether you deem those failures or just lessons. That's the main thing. All right, brilliant. I think that was a um, really good conversation about that, and I think we we understand the challenges of actually becoming an anti-racist organization is just the start. We're just scratching the surface of it, but. Um, we, we continue and be, to be part of that journey to help, help make a difference, really. Thank you for listening to the Seek Coach podcast. If you found this episode valuable, do share with your friends and family and do give us feedback. You can email us at theseekcoach at gmail.com or find us on Facebook just search the Seek Coach podcast and follow us on Instagram at the Seek Coach. 
Thank you for listening. Stay blessed.